Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the mysteries of people with super color vision, plus a hot Jupiter that rains gems, and Hank the Tank, the furry 500-pound dumpster-diving home invader taking California by storm. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. We all know about colorblindness. Maybe you yourself are colorblind. After all, about 300 million people globally exhibit colorblindness, which is close to the population of the entire U.S. But what about the opposite of colorblindness? What about people who see extra colors? Jackie Higgins recently dug into this in an excerpt published today in the Wall Street Journal from her new book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. Quoting Higgins, Human beings are trichromats, that is, the cones in our eyes are sensitive to three frequencies of light, long wavelength reds, medium wavelength greens, and short wavelength blues. As this trio reacts in differing intensities and combinations, our brain compares their outputs to create the perception of color. If red and green cones are activated, we perceive yellows and oranges, whereas differing combinations of green with blue cones can make teals and turquoises, and blue with red cones might make violets and indigos. The most common form of colorblindness in humans results from an absence of red or green cones, but there is another form in which all three cones are present, only tuned to somewhat unusual frequencies of light." For people with three fully functioning cones, we can distinguish about a million different colors. But tetrachromats, people with an extra cone, can see about a hundred million. The work into discovering the existence of tetrachromacy began in 1948 with Dutch physicist Hessel de Vries, who was fascinated by colorblindness and actually found two girls, the daughters of a colorblind man, who he believed could actually see more colors or see them in different ways than most people. But de Vries never looked into it anymore, and it wasn't until the early 2000s that a Cambridge grad student named Dr. Gabrielle Jordan picked up where de Vries had left off. Her first step was trying to find a bona fide tetrachromat. She was able to recruit women whose sons had colorblindness, meaning that the women probably carried the gene and passed on an unusually tuned cone to their sons. But since no one had ever been formally identified as a tetrachromat in the past, and there was so little research in the field, Jordan had some trouble figuring out how to screen the women for super color vision. Quoting again, There were no off-the-shelf instruments I could use, so I had to engineer an entirely different colorimeter from scratch, one that could create and control for subtleties of color that I could not see, she recalled. The design took months of careful experimentation in a darkroom, splitting beams of white light, filtering it through various combinations of lenses to distill the fine, spectrally pure bands. Finally, Dr. Jordan came up with an experiment in which subjects were shown three different lights in quick succession and asked to identify the odd one out. Two of the lights were monochromatic yellow of differing brightness. The third was a varying red-green mixture that would appear discernibly different only to someone with strong tetrachromacy. End quote. After a few fits and starts, Jordan did indeed finally find a genuine tetrachromat, a doctor from the north of England who had never before realized that she was so unique. 
Now, at least one other tetrachromat had a vague sense of her own color superpower early on and applied it to her work long before she ever found out about tetrachromacy. Conchetta Antico is a painter from Australia whose bright paintings of landscapes and flowers look slightly magical and with some artistic license if you look at them, but Antico insists that she is painting exactly what she sees. It's one of the few ways those of us who are not tetrachromats can try to understand how it is people like Antico actually see the world. Were tetrachromats to get a peek at how most of us see color, it would probably be like the majority of us getting a peek at how people with colorblindness see it, Jordan said. And Antico told The Guardian last month that she knew she wanted to be an artist from about the time she was five years old, that the whole world seemed magical to her, and that she would hyperfixate on elements of nature like a single leaf or a petal because she could see so much detail in them. And that zest for the natural world has kept up in adulthood, both as expressed through her paintings and in her approach to happiness. She says that people probably think she's always high on something, despite the fact that she doesn't do drugs, because the natural world just looks so remarkable to her. It's not all great, though. She told The Guardian that some human-created structures, and especially places with fluorescent lighting, can make her uneasy. She said, quote, I actually avoid going into those kinds of buildings unless I absolutely have to. I don't enjoy the barrage, the massive onslaught of bits of unattractive color. I mean, there's a difference between looking at a row of stuff in a grocery store and looking at a row of trees. It's like, it's ugly, and the lights are garish. It makes me not happy. End quote. Not everyone with the gene for tetrachromacy will experience it or pass it down, but you do need the gene to have it. And Antico thinks that her mom, who passed away many years ago, had it as well. But her own daughter was diagnosed with colorblindness, a result from the same gene. And not everyone with tetrachromacy might notice it as readily as Antico, like the doctor from Jordan's study who hadn't realized before that she was different. As a painter, Antico picks up on the details of color in ways that she probably would even if she were a trichromat. The practice has sort of made her tetrachromacy even stronger, in a sense, or at least her ability to pick up on it and also express it to others that much more accurately. So how lucky to have found a visual artist who can help us try to imagine what the world looks like to people with super color vision. If only Mr. DeFreeze could have met her. While we've been getting more and more insights on exoplanets over the last few years, those observations have tended to be of the bright day side of such planets. But now, a team from MIT has provided a detailed look at the dark side of one such planet, as well as the very first detailed view of any exoplanet's global atmosphere. The planet in question is called WASP-121b and is what some people call a hot Jupiter because it's a gas giant and, well, ultra-hot. Discovered in 2015, WASP-121b orbits a star about 850 light-years from Earth and is almost twice as big as the real Jupiter. For scale, remember that 1,300 Earths could fit inside of Jupiter. WASP-121b circles its star in only 30 hours. That's one of the shortest orbits astronomers have ever detected. It's also tidally locked to that star, which means that its day side is indeed ultra-hot, but its night side never gets to share any of that. Quoting Engadget, the researchers collected the data using spectroscopy from the Hubble Space Telescope for two orbits in 2018 and 2019. 
Many scientists have used this method to study the bright sides of exoplanets, but the dark side observations required detecting minuscule changes in the spectral line indicating water vapor. That line helped the scientists create temperature maps, and the team sent those maps through models to help identify likely chemicals. End quote. And quoting from MIT News, While on Earth, water cycles by first evaporating, then condensing into clouds, and then raining out, on WASP-121b, the water cycle is far more intense. On the day side, the atoms that make up water are ripped apart at temperatures over 3,000 kelvins. These atoms are blown around to the night side, where colder temperatures allow hydrogen and oxygen atoms to recombine into water molecules, which then blow back to the day side, where the cycle starts again. The team calculates that the planet's water cycle is sustained by winds that whip the atoms around the planet at speeds of up to 5 kilometers per second, or more than 11,000 miles per hour. It also appears that water isn't alone in circulating around the planet. The astronomers found that the night side is cold enough to host exotic clouds of iron and corundum, a mineral that makes up rubies and sapphires. These clouds, like water vapor, may whip around the day side, where high temperatures vaporize the metals into gas form. On the way, exotic rain might be produced, such as liquid gems from the corundum clouds." End quote. That's right, this hot Jupiter might rain gems. Exoplanets are so cool. On WASP-121b, it turns out that the temperature profiles of the day and the night side are flip-flopped. While on the dark side, the temperature drops with the altitude, on the day side, it actually increases with the altitude, something meteorologists call a thermal inversion. The hottest region on the planet is additionally shifted a bit from where they would expect it to be based on the star, which the researchers believe is due to those extreme winds. Winds so fast that co-author Tansu Dalen says they could move clouds across the entire planet in about 20 hours. Going forward, this same team has some time reserved on the new James Webb Space Telescope, during which they hope to map changes in carbon monoxide, which they are suspecting is present in the atmosphere. Study lead Thomas Michael Evans said in a news release, quote, that would be the first time we could measure a carbon-bearing molecule in this planet's atmosphere. The amount of carbon and oxygen in the atmosphere provides clues on where these kinds of planets form. End quote. And as Engadget reminds us, even though this particular planet is way too dangerous for mere humans, the more deeply we can study more exoplanets like it, especially their atmospheres, the better off we'll be in our search for actually habitable planets. Hank the Tank is a 500-pound black bear that has eschewed both the forest and typical hibernation in favor of breaking into over two dozen homes in South Lake Tahoe, California, and eating people's leftovers. California police have received over 100 calls about Hank, and the state's Department of Fish and Wildlife have been trying everything from sirens and tasers to paintballs and beanbags to deter the bear. But Hank just keeps coming back, because as the department spokesperson Peter Tira said on Sunday, quote, it's easier to find leftover pizza than to go in the forest, end quote. 
While some residents say that Hank is gentle and just wants to munch on some human junk food in peace, Tira points out that a bear this enormous who has clearly lost all fear of humans is a potentially dangerous situation. And Hank is exceptionally large. At 500 pounds, he is well over the 100 to 300 pound average weight of a black bear in the western US. As AV Club points out, Hank would easily sweep the floor of any other Fat Bear Week competitors were the annual contest to be presently occurring near South Lake Tahoe. But even those bears usually lose that weight during hibernation. Part of why Hank the Tank might be so big is because authorities believe he never went into hibernation. He started breaking into homes in July, and when winter hit, he never stopped. With all the sanctuaries currently being too full to take Hank, and all of their other methods failing in the long term thus far, California authorities are considering euthanizing Hank, although they do still refer to it as a last option. Anne Bryant, executive director of the Bear League, a wildlife rescue service, told the New York Times that while Hank has caused property damage, he hasn't hurt any humans. She said, quote, he just sits there and eats. He doesn't attack them. He doesn't growl. He doesn't make rude faces. Why should this big dummy die? End quote. AV Club, meanwhile, has declared Hank the Tank King Henry of California writing, quote, California has long anticipated the coming of Hank the Tank, a 500-pound black bear that's begun making itself known as the true governor of the state by roaming around South Lake Tahoe and breaking into residents' homes. For more than a century, the state's flag has depicted a bear striding across a grassy landscape in a clear indication that an Urson ruler would one day come to claim its rightful titles and lands, end quote. Indeed, long live King Henry. Well, the plot has thickened on this whole rocket booster crashing into the moon story. So as I've previously mentioned, there is a piece of a rocket that astronomers have identified as on course to crash into the moon on March 4th. It won't be dangerous or have any ill effects. It might be cool to study, though, and it also sheds light on the quickly growing problem of space litter. Now, at first, the booster was thought to have been from a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket that launched seven years ago, but further research from from additional parties re-identified it as being from China's Chang'e 5T1, which launched one year prior. Not entirely surprisingly, China has now rejected that claim, saying that the booster from the Chang'e 5T1 re-entered the atmosphere and was completely incinerated. But Bill Gray, developer of the Project Pluto software and the main astronomer that has been tracking this object, thinks that the foreign minister from China might be mistaken. Quoting Gray on his blog, I think the Ministry of Foreign Affairs simply got two different but similarly named lunar missions mixed up. The Chang'e 5T1 lunar mission launched in October 2014. The upper stage of that mission is the one that'll hit the moon this February. Separately, there was a Chang'e 5 lunar mission launched in November 2020, a different mission with a booster that did re-enter over the Pacific Ocean a week after it was launched. I originally identified 
classified this object as the 5T1 upper stage based on very strong orbital element or trajectory data that only got stronger with the added data about the amateur radio satellite attached to the 5T1 booster and the spectral analysis, so I don't really have any reason to doubt the identification. I should note that many have gotten these two missions mixed up before at one time or another, and given that, I think this was probably an honest error on the part of the foreign ministry. End quote. So maybe it is still a booster from China. Whatever it is and whomever it came from, it is definitely hitting the moon on March 4th, and as it is the first man-made object to unintentionally crash into the moon, it'll definitely be an interesting occurrence to observe. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.